Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm Kelly Brownell, director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome Robert Rabin, A. Calder McKay Professor of Law at Stanford University. Uh, this year he's at New York University teaching and lecturing, uh, but ordinarily he's at Stanford. He's one of the country's leading scholars on torts and other aspects of the law and has done especially interesting work um, in recent years well, not recent years, it actually goes back quite a number of years, on tobacco and the, the use of the law and other public uh, policy interventions to deal with the tobacco I issues, and has served on an Institute of Medicine committee on uh, tobacco use and tobacco use prevention, and also has been a key player in the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation initiative to deal with tobacco use. So, uh, Bob, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So ultimately, we're going to loop back toward the end on how what we have learned from tobacco might apply to nutrition and obesity. But let's just start with talking about the tobacco experience. Um, you've written a paper that I've seen recently that is an overview over what's known about tobacco prevention and what works and what doesn't. So can you give us your impressions about what we know and what we don't know and what you think has helped drive down tobacco use so much in the U.S. and what hasn't been so effective? Mm -hmm. I think uh, uh, the most effective uh, uh, initiatives or strategies that have been used to drive down tobacco use have been uh, informational, uh, public space restrictions, and the excise tax, uh, and uh, the symbiotic effect of the three in combination. Um, Why don't we talk about each of those uh, just a little bit in turn? And by the way, it probably bears mentioning that uh, the de decline in smoking rates in the U.S. has been substantial. In fact, I've heard some, you can give us the exact numbers, but mm -hmm. I've heard some people say it was the most important public health victory of the last century. Well, it could be. It certainly could be considered uh, to, to be uh, the most important. It, uh, over a 40-year period, the reduction in adult smoking fell from uh, roughly 40, over 40 percent of the adult population to about 20 percent of the adult population. That's quite a, quite a dramatic decrease. Now, having said that, uh, there still are upwards of four, over 400,000 uh, premature deaths from smoking uh, every year. Uh, Part of that reflects the fact that tobacco uh, kills people uh, over a long period of time. So the reduction from 40% to 20% in smoking prevalence hasn't yet been fully realized. Nonetheless, the fact that uh, there is an annual mortality rate associated with tobacco of over 400,000, and that in recent years, uh, the reduction in prevalence has tailed off, has kind of flattened out, uh, means that uh, tobacco use remains a very, very serious public health problem. Right, and not to mention the stunning number of people who are smoking outside the U.S., especially in the developing world. Oh, of course, world. yes. So that, yes. that's a, certainly a yes. significant problem. Yes. But there has been good progress, so that's very yeah. nice. So you mentioned yeah. three things, and one you talked about was, health, was information on health. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what you mean by that and how, how that's had an impact on people. Well, the government's played an important role, uh, beginning with the landmark Surgeon General's report uh, in 1964 and uh, 
requirements that uh, counter advertising, that is health effects advertising, uh, be uh, aired on the broadcast media back in the mid-60s when uh, tobacco ads were still being broadcast uh, on the media. Isn't that when things like It's a Matter of Life and Breath came about? And yes, Those big they ad did. campaigns yes, right. showing how bad smoking was. Yes. So those are certainly landmarks. And the environmental tobacco smoke reports that were published in the mid-1980s by the Surgeon General uh, and by the EPA uh, have also been uh, exceedingly uh, important in uh, generating opposition and uh, regulation uh, restricting uh, so where thought, smoking can take place and under what circumstances. So you're referring there um, to the uh, the work on secondhand smoking. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. That certainly did have a big impact, no question yes. about it. Yeah. Uh, talk, if you would, about the public place bans and what role that's played. Uh, well, the... the, the uh, uh, the secondhand smoke reports are really a bridge to, in the informational sphere, are a bridge to the restrictions uh, in, uh, uh, in smoking in public places and in the workplace because the attention that was generated uh, by those reports to public health problems of non-smokers uh, led to a very forceful movement uh, at the state and local level uh, to adopt uh, restrictions on smoking uh, in the workplace and in uh, public places such as uh, restaurants and bars. And I heard you mention that, that you think some people just come to the conclusion that it's not worth it. Yes. I, the, uh, there's an interesting interplay between the, the impact uh, of uh, public place restrictions and workplace restrictions on uh, secondhand smoke effects on non-smokers and uh, reduction in direct smoking by smokers because the it's not worth it uh, reaction uh, is one that common sense tells us would be likely in smokers if the time and place and rhythm of their smoking is severely uh, constricted uh, by uh, bans on smoking uh, in workplaces and in places of pleasure and entertainment like restaurants and bars. Okay, and you pointed out that another reason people may, may feel it's not worth it is the high cost of tobacco. Yes. And that, and that leads into the third category. That thing, leads the to the third category, right, yeah, the, th the third type of initiative that uh, I think has been highly effective, and that is um, steady increases uh, and very uh, substantial increases in some states, in uh, states and localities, in the excise tax uh, on tobacco. So that, uh, to take a, a very prominent example, um, a package of cigarettes is now over seven dollars uh, in New York City, and roughly three fifty of that, three and a half dollar, three to three and a half dollars of that is uh, excise tax. And the taxes vary a lot from state to state, don't they? They do. They vary considerably from New York and New Jersey that have excise taxes of over two dollars and fifty cents a pack, down to uh, some of the uh, tobacco. Uh, growing states where uh, the excise tax is still just 
uh, oh, under 25 cents a pound or 30 cents a pack. Right. And, and the uh, federal tax is actually quite small. The federal excise tax is something like, I believe it's 39 cents a pack. You know, that actually is going to lead to something we may get a chance to talk about later, about whether public policy on obesity and nutrition-related issues are going to take place at the federal or state level. And it's quite remarkable that the states have taken such aggressive action on the taxation front, but the federal government has not. And, uh, it, it, you know, with, with the power of the food industry and the agribusiness industry, you might yeah. expect the same thing to play out in the uh, state versus federal. That's election. right. There, there is a... Uh uh, um, uh, um, there is a, a strong political dimension uh, here, uh, and that is um, that uh, at the federal level, uh, the tobacco industry, and the same would be true of some of the large uh, food uh, players in the food industry, uh, can be very effective in concentrating uh, their lobbying efforts uh, and their campaign support. Uh, it's much more complicated uh, when a movement is grassroots, uh, when uh, there are provisions to ban smoking being uh, cropping up in one community after another, one local community after another in California, say, or in one state or another. Uh, it's, uh, it's extremely complicated for the industry to uh, lobby and use its uh, political muscle as effectively. You also mentioned uh, that there were things in, that you believe have been less successful in the tobacco arena. What would some of those things be? Yeah, well, the industry uh, has been so creative in, uh, uh, in its approach to advertising that it's, it's very difficult to, uh, for advertising restrictions uh, to, um, uh, to play a major role in uh, controlling um, the uh, uh, the uh, the sending of the tobacco message um, when when uh, advertising was banned on the media in the mid broadcast media on television uh, more yeah, or less, yeah. Uh, television really yeah. uh, in the mid 1960s uh, the uh, the industry shifted its resources to uh, print media I mean they were already in print media but they shifted more of their resources to print more media and billboard advertising and promoted more heavily the Marlboro Man campaign and the Joe Camel uh, campaign um, and uh, at a later point in time uh, the industry uh, shifted once again a great deal of their uh, advertising and promotion budget uh, to uh, the point of purchase, uh, point of purchase displays, point of purchase promotions. So uh, they're uh, they're very uh, flexible uh, and adaptable uh, in uh, in their use of uh, the advertising tool, uh, and as a consequence, restrictions, which are always uh, laboring in any event uh, under the or of uh, potential uh, First Amendment uh, difficulties, uh, First Amendment uh, prohibitions on restrictions that would, uh, uh, that would conflict with commercial speech, uh, makes it a difficult area um, uh, and, uh, and a lesser, an area of lesser consequence, I think, than the ones I mentioned earlier. Okay, so marketing, trying to stop marketing practices has its challenges because 
the industry is just likely to find a different, even perhaps more cost-effective way of yes. deploying their, their right. advertising dollar, and you might end up having a negative effect when you expected a positive one. Yeah. You also mentioned the youth access restriction. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, well, it's illegal, of course, for um, uh, children to smoke. Uh, every state uh, has, and now there's a federal uh, statute as well, providing that uh, uh, it's illegal for anyone under the age of 18 to smoke, which means, of course, that it's illegal to sell cigarettes uh, to anyone over the age of 18. Um, and uh, uh, that could be a kind of a supply-side uh, restriction uh, on um, smoking not a demand side, uh, but a supply side, that is cutting off access to supply uh, to youth. Um, it hasn't been that successful a strategy, uh, largely because it's a strategy that requires monitoring and enforcement. And uh, the um, commitment uh, just hasn't been there uh, on the part of state and particularly local enforcement authorities. They've uh, they have considered it a low priority, uh, and as a consequence, um, in many, many communities, it's not difficult for youth to uh, purchase cigarettes, uh, even if they are under the age of 18, say at the local convenience store or gas station. And of course, there's the problem, even if uh, enforcement were more vigorous, uh, of uh, uh, that uh, uh, their friends uh, who are 19 or 20 uh, might go in and purchase the cigarettes for them. So it's a, it's a complicated issue, and youth enforcement, by and large, there, there are exceptions. New York City appears to be an exception now. Uh, enforcement uh, has been lax uh, of the youth, uh, youth uh, restriction laws. Okay. Another area, and of course this draws very specifically on your expertise, mm -hmm. Is litigation. Where yeah. does that where does that play in here? Lawsuits against the tobacco industry. Well, the tobacco industry for many many years, really until the early 1990s, was successful in defeating every literally every uh, claim that was brought against every tort suit that was brought against them. Uh, when the revelations of uh, industry uh, deceit and manipulation of uh, of information. Uh, came out uh, in the 1990, early to mid-1990s, um, it reinvigorated the tort litigation on a number of fronts. Uh, it, there was a new effort to uh, bring in uh, individual suits uh, for damages against the industry. Uh, there were efforts to bring class actions uh, against the industry, first at the national level and then uh, when that uh, failed at uh, state, in different states. Uh, there were efforts to bring uh, suits for uh, um, secondhand smoke uh, exposure uh, against the industry, and there were efforts by third-party providers, um, uh, like the states, uh, which provided uh, which uh, incurred costs associated with their Medicaid uh, program. Uh, so they saw, sought to recoup those costs from the industry. Most of those efforts uh, have had very limited success. The class action uh, cases uh, have uh, had almost no success because it's uh, very hard to bring together 
smokers as a class to the satisfaction of a court uh, because the questions of assumed risk of um, uh, knowledge about the risks associated with the uh, smoking of tobacco, uh, with uh, risk-taking proclivities of the particular individual, um, uh, variations in the type of degrees and uh, diseases in the length of period that they smoked, uh, have uh, made it very difficult for the courts to feel satisfied that uh, a class could cohere. Um, individual suits, there have been a handful of uh, victories, but the industry fights every case very hard, appeals uh, every case that they do lose, uh, and, uh, uh, and that makes it difficult, uh, particularly when uh, punitive damages, which uh, at one time appeared uh, as um, a possibility for very substantial awards against the industry have been somewhat restricted by the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in another line of cases where they have uh, said that, uh, that punitive damages couldn't be um, uh, unduly uh, large as compared to compensatory damages uh, without violating the due process clause of the Constitution. So the individual cases, and juries still in many of the individual cases do find uh, that the smoker um, exercise freedom of choice, uh, and they're not willing to award damages. So the individual cases, like the class action cases, have not been a great success. The uh, secondhand smoke exposure cases, uh, it's just uh, very difficult to, uh, to get a class together uh, because uh, smoking, of course, is only harmful uh, if, if one is continuously uh, exposed to secondhand smoke for a very long period of time under relatively intense conditions. Uh, and uh, people tend to move around and not stay in the same job or in the same location uh, for a long period of time. So it's hard to put together either a class or even an individual secondhand smoke suit. So the only real success has been uh, the uh, state suits that I mentioned a minute ago uh, that were brought in every, it turned out it, it, after, in, in the late 1990s, against uh, the tobacco industry seeking um, reimbursement for the payments that the uh, industry, that the states had made uh, for uh, Medicaid costs and other associated costs. That case was uh, settled against, against all 50 of the states. The industry entered into a, a so-called master settlement agreement uh, for over $200 billion to be paid out over 25 years. And uh, that certainly can be counted as, uh, as a uh, uh, as, um, uh, more successful venture than the others. Do you see any conditions under which the litigation picture will change and the lawsuits against the industry will become more of a factor? I don't think so. Um, I, I don't think so. For one thing, uh, much of the success has turned on, well, the master settlement agreement really sealed off at a fairly substantial price, obviously, but it sealed off further litigation by the states. So they settled for the $200 billion to be paid out over 25 years. The individual suits and even the secondhand smoke suits, um, the industry 
uh, those suits, the success in the individual suits, uh, to the extent that there has been limited success, has turned in considerable part uh, on uh, the industries appearing uh, to be the ones wearing the black hats rather than the, than the smokers. That is, they're the ones who are the villains in the piece uh, because of the, uh, the, um, the way they suppressed research and, uh, and targeted their advertising campaign to vulnerable groups. Um, those documents, uh, every year they become more a matter of past history. Uh, and the industry has adopted the strategy of saying we we were wrong in the past, but now we're uh, we're we're operating in a in a more clean-handed fashion. Um, and to the extent that they can get that message across, then what looms larger is that these individuals, with all the information that they have about risk, keep smoking. Uh, so it makes success even less likely. So you've given some thought, <clears throat> I know, to the uh, application of this experience with tobacco to the obesity and nutrition arena. Mm -hmm. And I know there are places where uh, it becomes more of a challenge. Let's talk about that first, then maybe we can talk about opportunities. But I know, I know you've given some thought to how food is different from tobacco and that raises yeah. some barriers. Tell mm -hmm. me about that a little bit. Well, just in terms of oh, obesity is, is uh, not my, uh, my uh, area of uh, uh, expertise, but, uh, but it, it is natural, I think, at least it is for me, uh, to, uh, to be engaged by other public health problems, having spent time thinking about tobacco that appear to be very serious ones, and obesity certainly does appear uh, to be a very serious public health problem. So uh, I have given, at least in a preliminary way, and I hope to do more on it, uh, I've given some, some preliminary thought to how these strategies that I've mentioned uh, play out in the obesity area. And on, on the whole, the obesity area seems to me uh, even a more complicated area in which to efficaciously regulate. The informational landmarks like the Surgeon General's report and the Environmental Tobacco Smoke reports um, have no uh, counterpart, I think, in the obesity area as uh, landmarks of uh, informational impact on the public. It's more a matter of uh, increasing the incre incrementally increasing the awareness of the public of the problems associated with obesity. Um, and that's, that's a more complicated matter. Uh, obviously, um, it's easy. It's much. It's it's much easier when there is a particular industry to uh, or product to target uh, as a public health risk, which is true in the tobacco area. Uh, less true uh, in the uh, area of obesity. Um, the uh, the the uh, public place restrictions. Uh, that have been so effective in the tobacco area uh, don't have an exact counterpart in the obesity area because um, there, uh, there are no third-party effects from obesity that are comparable to the third-party effects uh, on non-smokers from exposure to secondhand smoke, and it's those third-party effects that have triggered the public place restrictions. You know, I'd say the, the closest parallel we may have are the schools and, con and conceptualizing the schools as a safe nutrition environment yeah. and therefore cleaning up the nutrition 
picture there. That's probably the closest parallel we have to the third party. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. That 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 sounds right. Yeah. yeah. And I know I also know that you mentioned that um, tobacco basically had one product and a yeah. half dozen companies mm-hmm. that sold yeah. them. And with uh-huh. food, there are thousands upon thousands of products and hundreds of companies that sell them. Yes, and then purveyors as well who uh, who might be regarded the fast food establishments that might be regarded as the villains in the piece. But again, it's just much more widely dispersed. You don't have that targeting of one particular industry as the responsible party. You know, um, I've been interested for a number of years in the issue of taxing foods. Yeah. And there are a couple Mm -hmm. of ways to conceptualize a food tax. One Mm -hmm. would be that you'd just put on a tax and the object would be to raise revenue to support, say, nutrition-related programs. Forget the effect the tax had on consumption patterns. And in that context, even a very small tax would raise considerable revenue. For Mm -hmm. example, just taxing soft drinks, one penny tax per can would raise a billion and a half dollars across Mm -hmm. the U.S. annually. And you could do a lot in terms of nutrition programs for that. Mm -hmm. Um, Then the other idea is to put a higher tax on, like exists with tobacco, where it would discourage consumption. Yeah. And then Mm -hmm. you could still earmark the money for nutrition programs. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if uh, what parallel do you think there might be there? Does the experience with tobacco apply to food, do you believe? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well, with food, I, the, probably with food, uh, one would expect the the tax to be at the national level rather than at the state level. It could be either one. It? In fact, it there are a number of states either. now, yeah. by the way, that have uh-huh. taxes on categories of foods like Is soft right? drinks or snack uh-huh. foods. Yeah. And the, the, the problem is understanding what impact they have because yeah. they've mainly been put in as a way to generate revenue. Yeah. And it hasn't yeah. been really a nutrition yeah. objective. Well, yeah, there are two points. As yeah. far as generating revenue is concerned, uh, the tobacco experience is not a happy one uh, because the revenue that has been generated uh, has been in virtually every state uh, has been used uh, as another source of general revenues rather than uh, as a source uh, of perhaps funding uh, health advertising or for other uh, uh, uses that would uh, promote further promote tobacco restrictions. So that, that's a caveat. That's a real warning label. Um, well, and, and with that in mind, which is a, a reality, a stark yeah. reality, yeah. then you, you enter into a tax that becomes regressive. And yes. there's not, not the opportunity to correct that with the earmark because the states aren't, won't perhaps not use the money for the correct yeah. kind of programs. Yeah. For example, you could do something like tax fast foods and soft drinks yeah. and take the revenue to pay for fruits and vegetables and drive their costs down. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then the consumer might come out even. Yeah, but that's st- very unlikely to right. occur. But it, that would, that would yeah. um, require the states to use the money in that way, and you never know. Yeah, the other problem uh, is one in terms of how much mileage can be gotten out of the taxation uh, strategy. Uh, And this is pure speculation. Maybe it's uh, unduly pessimistic. Uh, With tobacco, uh, the the tax was uh, concentrated uh, on uh, the people who are uh, the endangered uh, pool uh, of uh, users uh, of the product. So uh, it's both 
easier to justify to the general public uh, and also uh, can be seen as a way of um, uh, creating uh, targeted incentives uh, to uh, reduce use among those who need to reduce use. But with uh, food products, it gets much more complicated because there is the spillover effect of any tax uh, to all of those uh, individuals who are not obese uh, and who use the product in a moderate way or uh, or go to the place of uh, where uh, the fast food place uh, uh, only moderately uh, and, uh, uh, and would deeply resent uh, a tax uh, that would hit them as well as the, uh, the individuals who are uh, uh, the particular uh, generating source of the tax in the first instance. Right. Well, I appreciate your thoughts on that. Let me ask one other question. Sure. Um, there is some scientific literature building now on the issue of food and addiction. Mm -hmm. And there are animal studies showing that if you put animals off and on a high-sugar diet, you get activation of the same brain pathways you get, say, when you administer morphine to mm -hmm. animals. There are some uh, studies with humans using brain imaging techniques finding pretty similar things. And it's not a mature enough field to say for certain that food is addictive, but mm -hmm. it's consistent with what some of our patients tell us. Um, and it's also consistent with, um, with this preliminary evidence, as I said. But, but again, we, it's, it's speculative at this point. But if food were found to be addictive or if things added to food were found to be addictive, how do you think that would change the legal landscape? Well, it's a question of where you go with it. Um, there, uh, there are numerous studies indicating that uh, nicotine in cigarettes are addictive. It's not a, it's not a, a debated question at this point. It's clear that uh, nicotine is addictive and as a consequence uh, that uh, smokers uh, are addicted to some extent uh, by, uh, by smoking on a regular basis. Uh, or to smoking on a regular basis. Uh, but where does one go with that? Um, the public, by and large, if you, if you count uh, juries uh, as a sample of the public, uh, have not been convinced that the fact that there uh, are strong addiction data means that people can't quit. They believe that still, if people try hard enough, they'll be able to quit. They don't lump smoking with morphine or opium, at least as far as addiction uh, is concerned. So there's a, a hard, uh, there's, a, there's a difficult sales job so far as the public uh, is concerned. Now, that isn't the only issue, uh, obviously. Um, the bill uh, before Congress now to um, uh, to give the Food and Drug Administration regulatory authority over the tobacco industry uh, would, depending if it, well, it has to pass, but depending on whether it's, uh, how it's amended, uh, would give, as it stands now, would give the Food and Drug Administration the authority to ratchet down the nicotine content gradually over time of tobacco and hence to make smoking uh, less addictive, uh, and that may be a model that's worth thinking about. Uh, 
It is, uh, and the, the linchpin there. With respect there, to food products. Right, I know. think the linchpin is proving uh, that addiction occurs. Yes. Otherwise, right. it's pretty hard to fault an industry for putting yeah. things in their product that make people want it more. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the research on this will be interesting to see as, yeah. it, as it progresses. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Bob. It's been really wonderful having you as a guest. I'd like to thank uh, Robert Rabin, a Calder McKay Professor of Law at Stanford University School of Law, for joining us today and uh, sharing his expertise. So thank My you. pleasure, Kelly. Thank Thanks for having me. And I'd, I'd like to note at the end that we have a number of other excellent webcasts on the Rudd Center website. That can be accessed through www.yalerudcenter.org. Thank you very much.